The Competitive 40K Network presents Art of War. Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. Now your host, Steve Jahl and the Art of War Coaches. Hey folks, well, welcome to The Art of War. This is The Art of War podcast, the flagship podcast on the competitive 40K network. Listen, this is where you come to get better at 40K. The Art of War, if you check it out on Facebook, The Art of War 40K uh, and, and online has all of the coaching, all of the battle reports, all of the podcasts, all of the everything you need to get better at the game. And it's just, it's greatness all the way around. Speaking of greatness, this is an episode jam-packed with it uh we're switching things up a little bit today first let me introduce my co-host oh by the way my name's steve joel i'm not a very good player but i talk for a living that's why i'm here so we do get a good player in to be the co-host and and ask all the big questions and uh today the godfather of 40k coaching we've made an offer made him an offer he can't refuse so he's here the winner of basically everything including the itc a couple of years back now commentator and analyst, as well as still top 10 player in the ITC, Nick Nanavati. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great, Steve. Thanks for having me. Well, <laughs> I should be saying that to you. Thanks for having me. This is your thing. Hey, listen, I did some looking around, and um, four of the top 10 players in the ITC right now are, and this is including you, are on your team. How good is it to have all of that quality as part of the Art of War? team um it, it's amazing i really i have no other words for it. it's not like i just picked the best players and put them on a team i think we elevate each other and everyone's super motivated and we we work really hard at it and i couldn't be more proud of everyone so it's it's really super cool i also while i was looking noticed that they've just updated that the the uh the rankings and our guest is going to be pretty happy this week's guest normally co-host now guest is the number one player in the ITC as of me just checking a few minutes ago, John Lennon. Congrats, man. Hello, hello. Thank you. I actually didn't know that. I'm going to go take a look right now. <laughs> yeah, you bumped Chester off the top of the pile. Oh, even better. Sweet, sweet. Oh, the poor old man. We got to get him on Unbroken. <laughs> it's such an ironic name, having a broken man on Unbroken. Um, now... Uh, John, winner of the New Orleans Open with your beloved Tyranids. It feels like it's been a long wait to get Tyranids back to what we're going to say is right near the top of the the heap. Uh, it must feel good, right? Absolutely. I'm I'm really happy about it. Tyranids were my first army. Um, someone made a comment that this may be the first major that Tyranids have won in like three years. Wow. Uh, and of course, there's a small gene store called Asterisk next to it, but I'm willing to call it a Tyranid army. Yeah, so are we saying Tyranid or are we saying Forces of the Hive Mind? Well, I, I think I have to say Force of the Hive Mind because that's what the apps are going to say. But uh, in my heart, this one's about the Tyranids. There's a funny story here before we get into it. The whole week leading up to the New Orleans event, John and I were like talking about what he was going to play. Because obviously I want him to give himself the best shot at winning because I know he's gunning for the top in ITC and he's, he wants to put his best forward. And if he doesn't, he's going to shoot himself in the foot if he doesn't. If you know if he doesn't win, so I wanted to empower him. So I was like, play Grey Knights or play this or play that. I was like, Tiernans are playing 40k on hard mode. And then John just submitted a list. We went back and over like three days, and they just submitted a list without telling me. And the next day, I like wake up and I'm like, John, so what you doing? He's like, oh, I submitted Tiernans. So then I supported him because what else can I do? But he's like, I want my cake and eat it too. And I'm so happy that he got it because it was my birthday also. 
he got the cake. He got to eat it. He got the icing. He got the cherry on top. It was the whole thing. So, um, listen, before we get into too, too deep into this and, and start on looking at the list. So, for folks who are, who are new to this, if you've just come across this podcast and you're listening thinking, what the hell is this all about? Well, here's the thing. We are going to teach you how to play uh, Tyranids, essentially, or Forces of the Hive Mind, over the next two parts of one great big episode of this podcast. The way it works is part one of the episode is really all about the list and list building and warlord traits and strats and relics and how it all works and how you put an army together. And we've got two of the best players in the world of list writing to help us kind of go through that whole process. Then part two of the show, which is for subscribers only, will look at the way the list plays against all of the other big big armies in the meta right now. And it's not just specific armies. We look at archetypes of armies. If you play something that's melee heavy and we don't specifically mention your army, you'll still be able to take a lot out of part two of the episode. Where you find that is theartofwar40k.com. Honestly, look them up on Facebook. You can ask any questions if you're nervous about it, worried about it, want to know how much it costs, want to know what you get out of it. The team at The Art of War are so approachable and so friendly. One of the most approachable, friendly uh, teams in the world. You ask questions, they'll answer. They're, they're there for you and there to help you get better. So go subscribe to the Art of War 40K uh, and you will be able to get all the goodness of part two of not just this episode, but every episode of the podcast. Uh, John, what I wanted to attack before we do anything else is something has happened with the update to make NIDS suddenly appear you know, on top tables again. And I'm really curious to find out what it is that changed and particularly why Leviathan is now what everybody's looking at taking. Yeah, absolutely. So really what this comes down to is uh, Tyranids before were an 8th edition codex that had a lot of tricks, but was perhaps being held back by some aging data sheets uh, and some outdated points costs. But what we really what we really got to boost us back into, into the sun was uh, a supplement. We got a High Fleet Leviathan supplement that came out in Wars on Octarius Part 1, and along with that, they introduced new rules for synaptic links, which is kind of Tyranid's defining special rule. Um, it, before, it was very underwhelming. Synap synapse just gave you basically auto-passing morale, which is a fine rule. It's certainly not bad, but you know, morale is not the most impactful thing in the game. So when that was the only thing that was your unique mechanic, it felt a little underwhelming. Now you have these little upgrades similar to Chapter Master that you can put onto all these different synapse creatures that they give different buffs to the army. It's a very fluffy way to play but the best part is of course that high fleet leviathan supplement uh gave a whole page of stratagems to high fleet leviathan and catapulted it to the by far the best of the high fleets and it also came with a suite of relics and warlord traits which was very very important because tyranids traditionally do not have very good options in either of those so it, it took a, an aging book gave it some new ninth edition flavor gave it some new options to really replace what was the weak spot of the army and gave it some excellent stratagems that kind of kept the the offense of the army keeping up with the the other ninth edition books, whereas before it felt like they were lagging behind. Um, right. There's quite a few relics and warlord traits that I'll talk about when I go over the list. Some good strats as well, but just the whole cohesive thing. A plus for Tyranids. Yeah, well, A plus for uh, Leviathan, right? And I guess Tyranids players are now waiting for their their proper book book to come out so that the other. The other high fleets all get a, a little taste of the same. If this is an, any indication of what's coming for, for them, that's going to be pretty good. So, uh, well, let's look at the list then, and then we can start breaking it down. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'll start at the top. Uh, quite simply, this is a high fleet Leviathan uh, battalion with a Gene Slurkle patrol. 
So the High Fleet Leviathan Battalion starts with a Malanthrope and the Swarmlord. The Malanthrope is uh, my Warlord. Um, he has two Warlord traits because of a Stratagem and a Relic. He has uh, Adaptive Neurolobe, uh, Alpha Leader Beast, and Strategic Adaptation. I'll go over those a little bit later. Uh, next up, I have the Swarmlord, uh, just the best-named character in the Codex. No problem about it. Then we're going into two squads of Gene Stealers. They're each 12 mana, so two 12-man Gene Stealer squads. One unit of Hormigaunts. Uh, those Hormigaunts are a 19-man squad. And then two squads of Termagants. Those Termagants are 26 strong. Very specific numbers, I promise. They are important. And uh, each Termagant is armed with a Devourer. Uh, finally, rounding out the troops, I have a unit of Tyranid Warriors. They are bare bones with Scything Talons, but I did uh, upgrade them with Synaptic Link. And uh, moving on for our elites, I have a single unit of Hiveguard uh, with Impaler Cannons, one Lictor, and a Maliceptor with a second Synaptic Link. And then uh, rounding out the detachment is a unit of Sky Slasher Swarms, which are the Forge World Flying Rippers. Uh, going into that Gene Slur Cult Patrol, it is the Cult of the Four-Armed Emperor. And right there, I have a Patriarch and two squads of five Acolytes. And that is 1998. That is, there's so much. There's so much to discuss in this list. Uh, and there'll be there'll be a bunch of things that we can get to. For example, why you're not just running eighteen gene, um, eighteen hive guard. But I guess the the first thing is to to look at. You mentioned them already. The the warlord traits and the relics, and you know what makes that melanthrope tick particularly. But then the other guys as well. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, all of my warlord traits and relics are stacked on that melanthrope. Uh, the melanthrope is is just fantastic. Uh, just to kind of explain what he does, he's a hundred and fifty point character with negligible combat. No shooting, no psychic, nothing. He's just a synapse creature. He doesn't get a link, but he gives a six inch aura of minus one to hit and shooting, which can help a lot in certain matchups. And of course, he is a character who is, uh, you know, untargetable. He benefits from lookout, sir, because I really want to protect these buffs. What he does as my warlord is after the first uh, turn has been rolled for, he lets me redeploy two units, which could potentially put them in reserves. Uh, this is massive for Tyranids, more so than other armies, because Tyranids are traditionally very fragile. And so if you deploy something in the wrong spot and then it gets shot, it's almost certainly dead. So Tyranids are normally forced into a very conservative deployment because you don't want to risk a 50-50 shot of losing a very valuable resource. Uh, the second Warlord trade he has uh, basically lets him pick a unit within 9 inches of Infantry Beast or Swarm and lets them re-roll their hit rolls. This is shooting and combat. It's basically a Warlord trait that tells this Malanthrope to remember that time he ate a Chapter Master. So uh, I'm sure this Malanthrope ate Dante at some point, and it, it is baked into his DNA. Um, tell Jack Harpster I said that. He remembers being a chapter master, and he's three inches better at it than the Space Marines are. <laughs> that's right. Nine-inch reroll hits. So all of that is great. That's, um, that's your Malanthrope, and as you say, he's, he's there to buff. Uh, mm -hmm. if, if I was to use an army like this, my big concern would be protecting him and making sure he doesn't just die turn two. Um, is that something that you need to kind of really be aware of and be careful of? Um, I actually, I don't know if I've ever, I don't know if he's ever died. Um, I'm sure he has at least once that I've forgotten about him, like turn five or something. But he, he's not that hard to protect, frankly, just because he doesn't do anything besides buff. So he's very happy being in the backfield. Um, uh, the other thing he does is he gives me a CP regeneration because of his relic. But once he is down, all he does is provide defensive buffs, which means he wants to be close to big units. Therefore, lookout sir is already kicking in because that's where he wants to be the most useful. And he likes to kind of float around my backfield, just giving out reroll hits to something before it goes out there on an adventure to cause some violence. Uh, so I, I found him very easy to protect because a lot of the things he does are just kind of passive. And uh, other than the chapter master buff, it just he just kind of sits there and does his thing. So he just sits in the back, not being very useful, not being very scary. Um, 
And so he usually gets ignored until the end of the game because anytime someone could hit him, they're just going to hit the unit who's buffing that's right next to him. I'm conscious that uh, Nick here is probably waiting with some some genuinely good questions, but <laughs> is it okay, Nick, if I hit a couple more before I kind of bring you into us the proper stuff? Of course, of course. I think it's really great that you're getting into terms with all the units and warlord treats and milks in the army because they're all brand new. And yeah. they are weird tiered names. So, you know, it's important to make sure we're all on the same page of what everything does. Uh, the other thing is, uh, I mean, there's so much that just occurs to me straight off. But one thing I wanted to ask about, because people will wonder, is the, the you've got a guy called the Swarm Lord who's 240 points. And the only thing he used to be able to do, I mean, people would just put him in their list to slingshot a unit of infantry across the table. Is that all he's good for? Or does he do more for 240 points? Uh, I mean, I'm going to be honest. That is the reason he's in the list still. Uh, the Swarm Lord does still have that wonderful ability to pick a unit within six inches in the movement phase, and uh, and then it lets it move or advance. Um, that obviously works well in a combat army because your combat units get faster. Uh, there are two 12-man genes to their squads, which aren't as big as they could be and therefore not as hard-hitting. Um, but what the Swarm Lord really excels at, in my opinion, is he's a good caster. He knows two spells. Uh, I gave him Catalyst and Paroxysm. Catalyst gives a five-up feel no pain or an ignore wounds to uh, one unit. And Paroxysm is a fight last, which I normally don't use, so he'll smite. But Paroxysm is very useful just to have a fight last in the banquet in those matchups where you need it. Uh, the big thing that I like about the Swarm Lord is that he's kind of he's kind of small for 240 points. Like you expect him to be this giant Bellacor-sized monster. He, he's not. And he's kind of easy to hide. And uh, he's actually pretty good in melee. I don't think he's 240 points of good in melee. But there's this really fun thing with the Swarm Lord where he has a 3-up and vulnerable save in combat. And kind of at the end of the game, he'll double move himself. And like the Swarm Lord is going to sit behind a wall for like three or four turns as the rest of my army runs around the table get, going faster because of him and uh, getting all over the place, clogging up the board, playing the mission. And then at the end of the game, like there's kind of a point where my opponent cannot kill a three up and vulnerable save monster in close combat. So right at the end of the game, he's going to run out, move himself nine, then move himself another nine and charge someone. And suddenly he's just like, oh, it's too late to kill him. And he's just causing a little bit of damage, being annoying, tying things up because. You, you waited too long to address them. The other thing right off the bat that occurs to me, and you mentioned it already, you've got really specific numbers of troops here. Your gene stealers, 12 of them, three acid moors. Can you explain with your troop choices why, say, 26, two lots of 26 termagants, you've got two lots of 12 gene stealers, where the, what the acid moors do and why they're there and uh, whether or not it's all just down to points? Yeah, I mean, points certainly were a factor in it and making it all fit. Um, but for the gene stealers, um, they get an acid moth for per every four models. So being a multiple of four is pretty valuable. And I didn't like 16 because it was too expensive and it, uh, uh, it was just too expensive, I found. Um, but the, the acid moth is basically like a power sword. Uh, it makes the gene stealers attacks all AP3. So a gene stealer has four attacks when it's in a 10-man squad. So out of this 12-man unit, it's going to make you know 48 attacks with their rending claws. Uh, but because there are three acid moths, 12 of those attacks are going to be used just flat ap3 instead and that just helps give a little bit of extra punch when you're trying to kill marines or you know characters with like a good two up armor save just a little bit of extra punch in there i didn't i think two acid maws is too few so 12 man is the smallest squad that can take three great and the 26 termagants with the devourers again just just that, the points thing uh that is actually uh going uh right off of uh my secondaries uh 26 is the small is the largest a termagant squad can be without costing more than a Maliceptor. Uh, the Maliceptor is 185 points, and these Termagant units are 182. And I like having the option of to the last in the list. Right. So in those games um, where I take it, I don't want the Termagants to be to the last because, well, they're they're gaunts. They're very fragile. You 
you know what could happen to them. <laughs> yeah, man, that's interesting. See, that's that's the way a top player thinks, people. We're looking at putting this list together with the secondaries already in mind, which brings us to that, I guess. So uh, since you've touched on it, what secondaries does this army like? Uh, absolutely. So I believe, uh, specifically from New Orleans, I believe I took to the last in all nine games um, because uh, my to the last here are the end of Hiveguard. Uh, they're obviously very defensive. Uh, they like being behind a wall and killing things that would threaten them. Uh, the Maliceptor, who likes sitting next to the uh, the Tyranid, the Hive Guard, and letting them do their job. And the Swarm Lord, who, as I mentioned, is a small guy who's kind of easy to hide, and he's quite tough. Uh, he he's quite tough uh, when he when he goes out there late game. So it's just three things that are all buff pieces or damage dealers that don't need to see the enemy and don't need to get particularly close to the enemy. So as long as I'm sending out waves of bodies and hordes of gaunts. I can keep my three most valuable resources usually safe behind obscuring terrain. Great. So to the last is to the last is a gimme. What else do you like? If I look at this list, I assume you're going to take something <clears> like <throat> engage on all fronts because you're so fast. But is that mm-hmm. just is that just a trap? You like people to think that, and you go in, a, in another direction. <laughs> I'd love to say it's a trap, but no, I, <laughs> I I will take stranglehold or engage in all fronts in almost every game. I've actually found myself in, enjoying engage in all fronts more the more I play with the list uh, because. I don't like having to hold more than my opponent. I very often would find that I would hold three and the same as my opponent because I was denying them, you know, their primary points. But I also, uh, I, I just found that engage on all fronts was actually getting me a few more, just a few more uh, points than I uh, than hold. The third one that I often would take, assuming my opponent did give me something easy, is retrieve Octarius data. Um, we are, of course, still using the uh, the chapter proof twenty twenty pack. Uh, or the 2021 packs, we're not using the new Retrieve Nakoin data yet. And that means that um, I can use like lictors on it. So I have the one lictor and I have two units of acolytes. And uh, acolytes actually have a really nifty stratagem called Lying in Wait, where for two CP, they can they deep strike for free. For two CP, they can deep strike three inches away instead of nine inches away. And it is incredibly hard to screen out three inches away from an entire table quarter. So I can very often, you know, spend two CP put an Acolyte squad on an objective in one of the quarters that's far from me. So they're going to contest a primary, get me an engaged in all front point, and retrieve Octarius data in that quarter. And because I have two of them, I can potentially do this on turn two and turn three to get the two far away quarters. And then it's pretty easy to get one of my own on turn you know, four or five. Um, so I'm very good at retrieve Octarius data. I took that often. Uh, I've occasionally gotten an eight on it, but I, I almost always get a 12. Um, and engaged in all fronts, I almost always get about 10 to 12 points as well. And uh, to the last is very frequently a 15. Not always, but frequently. Yeah, nice. So you're looking at, that's that's a good number of points on your secondaries, right? Actually, sorry, one more, Nick, and then, then he's all yours. Um, Chopping at the bits. <laughs> I'm doing it for you. <laughs> one more question. The secondaries. In the uh, supplement, were there any secondary options available now to Leviathan or to Tyranids, or was that ignored in the supplement? That has been ignored. Uh, so far, uh, Tyranids are still an 8th edition codex. So uh, we we don't have any specific secondaries for our faction. Um, I'm very excited to find out what we're going to get once uh, that codex does come out. But uh, at least for the foreseeable future, uh, Tyranids haven't been announced as a codex anytime soon. I got to stick to the rulebook. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. All right. I'm sorry, Nate. You're up. What you got? All right. Well, I want to continue Steve's line of questioning before I ask the question I'm very excited for. Why is there a Gene Stealer cult attachment? It's oh, like I mean, take going out of your way to take uh, kind of do nothing attachment what's the point of that yeah absolutely so i I think i should start this is going to be a long-winded answer enjoy it nick um i have to start by saying that like tyranids as an army as i mentioned are very very fragile and what they're best at is controlling the pace of the game 
And what they're worst at is having someone rush them, punch them in the mouth, and then recovering from that. So what Genius Recall provides is twofold. The easy part of it is good secondaries. They make retrieve octaries data and engage small fronts very easy. The real reason they're there is because of Colt Ambush and Blips. Uh, Blips is a mechanic for Genius Cult where instead of deploying a unit like in your deployment zone, you can place a blip down somewhere in that deployment zone instead. And blips have this magical rule where if you go second, you, you the Gene Cult player, uh, then your opponent cannot end a move within nine inches of a blip. So, And there are even stratagems to place additional blips. So something I did very frequently was I have three units in my Gene Cult attachment. And I would deep strike the two acolyte squads and I would just deploy the Patriarch. And then instead of deploying the Patriarch, I'd pay one CP during deployment. And I'd place four blips on the very edge of my deployment zone, kind of spaced out. And now if my opponent goes first, they cannot end a move within nine inches of a blip. So let's say someone has an incursor squad and they deploy at nine inches of my deployment zone, then they go first. If the normal Tyranid army, no allies, that incursor squad can move six inches forward, check to see who's in charge range, rapid fire bolt guns into, you know, gene stillers or gaunts or something, and then charge me. This can be very scary. Drop pods, same thing. Um, planes, you know, a plane can fly into my deployment zone and then start peeking around corners and look behind obscuring terrain and find out who doesn't want to get shot. Uh, very, very scary things. The blips are there to make sure that if I go second, because as a playstyle, I like going second. Um, if I go second, I'm not at an immediate damage disadvantage, or my opponent gets to deliver a really good hit to me. Uh, this couples wonderfully with the redeploy, where I can deploy very aggressively with a couple units and then put a line of blips down. And now if I go second, I deploy with perfect knowledge. I hide really far back, and I have blips out to make sure my opponent doesn't get close to me. And almost every time, their first turn is not going to hurt very much. From a damage perspective. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I think the keeping your opponent off you from a pressure perspective is really how you want to control the flow of the game. But a lot of times when I see newer tuner players or um new gene circle players, they kind of run at their opponent at full speed, try to overwhelm them. I've never seen you do that. You typically play a more reserved game. How does that actually look on the table? How do you deploy and what's your strategy overall? Yeah. So my thought process is is that tyranids are fragile for their points. And I'm never going to have models left after five turns of, of, of war. Like if I'm actually interacting with my opponent and my opponent's interacting with me for five battle rounds, either I have killed them or I am dead. Uh, there's no scenario where I'm fighting someone for five turns and I have models left. Uh, so for me, it's all about picking and choosing which rounds it's going to be. Um, Tyranids, they can be very interactive with their opponent and you can offer them up things to die. But because Tyranids are very fast, they, they get to choose that. And I don't want to give my opponent a lot of choices. I want to be the one making decisions. So I look at the army as I want to set up one turn of my opponent can't interact with me very hard. That's turn one. I've got blips out. I have a redeploy. If I go second, they're not going to interact with me very hard. And then if I just immediately rush at them, well, now they're getting four turns of interacting with me. Or if I go first and rush at them, then they get five turns of interacting with me. And I'm going to run out of stuff if I don't table them. I never want to rely on tabling my opponent because tyranny damage output is significantly improved. But frankly, I, I just don't like that as a play style because you never know when you're going to have one bad turn of dice. Your opponent's going to hit you back and discover that you were made of paper mache and dreams. Um, so I always look at it as I want to control what my opponent can hit and limit my casualties by giving my opponent something so that they can't have everything. So I'm going to, you know, send out a unit of gaunts as like a move blocking screen to stop reserves from coming in nearby me. Uh, I've you know I have the ability to double move a unit with a swarm lord. If I use a CP, I can even triple move the same unit. I can send this swarm unit flying across the board. But if I fly across the board and charge something, 
I'm probably not going to kill a Tormagant, so then they're just going to punch me back and kill me. I'd rather fly up and make them fight me in their turn by having to stop in front of me and not move past me. And now they get to kill the Gaunts, and then it's a reset. It's back to my turn. They've only killed a 100-point unit of Gaunts. Now I get to you know reestablish my pace, get to use all of my units again. I want to buy myself as much time as possible. And that's kind of how I approach the army, is I've got some valuable parts and some worthless parts. And the worthless parts are there to let the valuable parts run for all five turns so that they don't get hit early. So it sounds like a lot of your game plan is to stall your opponent by taking Sworn Lord or uh, using stratagems to double or even triple move things like these 10-man gaunts. And I imagine you're spreading them out in like as big of a line coherency-wise you can, like conga line formation, to, sl- to stand right in front of your opponent and keep him from going places. But don't you find that your opponent would be able to just like move up to them, declare a charge, they'll get that extra few inches from pile and consolidate, which we talk about in the war room. They'll get up the table anyway, and then they'll control more objectives than you. So how does this lead to a win? Is it just the one unit of hive guard pounding for five turns? Or is there more um, I mean, I'm going to be honest. The one unit of Hive Guard can do a lot of work, but I actually had uh, two different games. Uh, my first two games of the tournament, actually, where I played against someone with indirect and I lost most of the Hive Guard on turn one. So it's not just the Hive Guard. Uh, what it's really about is controlling their points while they do so. So Tyranids, I don't think, are a great army at scoring 100 points, but they're really good at getting 80 points. And so my goal then is to make sure that my opponent gets 70 points or ideally less. So how, how do you determine that? Just to pause your thought overall. Mm-hmm. Like how do you so, determine turns are good at getting 80 points instead of 100? So I look at, um, well, quite, quite frankly, I look at my secondaries where I take to the last and sure it can be a 15, but you know, sometimes two last cannon shots kill a monster. So I always plan on it as being a 10. If it's a 15, it's a bonus. Retrievoc Darius date is always going to be like 12 points. Uh, or eight, it's never going to be 15. So I'm already, and I'm down three on Octarius at a minimum. I'm probably going to be down um, a few on uh, to the last, but maybe I get a 15 if I do well. Uh, the big thing is engage is almost never 15 for me because I actually never try to engage on all fronts on turn one. I take engage in all fronts, I take my first turn, and I don't score engage in all fronts. And then after that, I'm trying to get up to a 12, but realistically, I'm going to miss a quarter here, maybe a quarter there. And now I'm down to like, you know, maybe I get like a, an 11 on it. So if I cut four points there, three on Retrieve Octarius data, I'm down to a potentially a 93. But then, I, of course, I have to get a 45 on primary. And again, I found that with Tyranids, I can't try to play for all five turns because if I do, I get tabled. So on many maps, I don't actually try to get a 10 on primary every turn. I, I will concede one turn of a five on primary to preserve resources. Because if I take those resources and keep them and I hide them and I protect them, I'm much more likely to get a 15 later. So as far as I'm concerned, I can either get a 10 on like turn two or three and lose some units, or I can have those units contributing or hiding for three or four turns and then get the same five points on primary at the end of the game. So I get the same primary either way, but now I have these units later and I get to prolong my choices and I get a more informed you know, board state. I get to see more of the table before I make the choice of where this unit goes. Um, so I've often found that with Tyranids, my primary caps at like a 40 where unless i'm enough i'm completely destroying someone sure it becomes a 45 but in a tight game my primary is usually a 35 or 40 where they're trying to kill my gaunts and my troops as fast as possible and sometimes i you know i'll get a five on occasion i'll get a 15 on occasion and then there's a lot of tens so it, it just never really adds up to being like 95 97 points unless i have a very comfortable victory so 
I, I try not to rely on just like, yeah, I'm going to let my opponent get 95 points as long as I get 96. I have to take both of us down a level. Otherwise, I'm going to run out of resources because I've tried to play that that play style where I try to race someone to, you know, to the 90s and it, it didn't work for me. That's actually, you know, how I ended up tying Richard Siegler at uh, the Austin uh, GW Open, which unfortunately we were made aware of the, the tiebreakers on like turn three. That was effectively a loss for me because it sent Richard to the top table and left me on table two. Uh, and I, I wasn't happy with that. I didn't like how that played. So I tried to look at it as I'm not trying to get as many points early so that I have more units later. And then those units will get me points later and deny my opponent more. So I've kind of taken both me and my opponent down a level and in doing so, preserve my units for later. And that's been more effective for me. Can so I, if I could try to summarize all that, you're trying to shorten the length of the game. Instead of playing five turns, you're trying to play like four or three or two because your units are a little bit squishier and softer. So you're trying to backload all your points. And that's why you've taken things like to the last. You're not engaging early. You're engaging late. Retrieve Octary State is a lot easier. The later turns with flying and wait those gene circle tricks can do and you're really trying to play the back half of the game exactly you, you summarized it perfectly um that, that's really where tyranids are best is being able to choose when to engage because i think tyranids are the most reliable fast army in the game and what's the point of having these magical choices if i'm just going to choose what my opponent wants to do anyway i don't want to do play on my opponent's game plan i need to make it my game plan can i go back to the deployment phase of the game and you, you because it does seem like in the list uh you've you've put things in there specifically to mess with your opponent's play style which you were just talking about you know you, you don't want to play on their terms you want to play on yours you've got your blips that you want to put out so you've got as you said four blips you're putting those out you've got the option to redeploy two units uh so you know if your opponent's going first i'm wondering if there's if there are units that you will always kind of in my mind maybe the gene stealers go out become really threatening for your opponent then if you end up going second they get redeployed somewhere a little bit safer uh, what's your what's your strategy for for redeploy versus the blips for keeping people away, and how do you do that? Yeah, so um, what I found most frequently is that I kind of start off by deploying um, like a Gene Stealer squad or a Termagant squad of the Devourers on the line, where one of my first drops, knowing that I have a redeploy, I'm like, yep, I'm just going to put these Gene Stealers literally on the line as far forward as possible. Tell my opponent, hey, if I roll well in advances, they can move 28 inches and then declare a charge and kind of watch their deployment react to that. Um, if in this particular matchup, the Termagrants are going to be more valuable, I do the exact same thing. And I say, hey, if I roll good on the advance, I can shoot something 30 inches away and just watch them react. And what I really want to happen is my opponent is, I really want them to look at this and be like, mm, I'm going to deploy six inches farther back than normal. And then even if I go first, I'm just going to take those genes first, put them in the back anyway. Honestly, they, they were never... I never want to send genes out on turn one. That's I, I don't I don't enjoy doing that because it's wasted resource because they're just going to die. And instead, it's like, all right, well, now that you're six inches back, you are effectively one turn away from being where you would have been otherwise. I have just bought myself a turn, and I need to buy. I I try to buy myself two turns, where if uh, you know I don't want to play for all five turns, I found that three is the magic number where I can really rumble with people for three turns, and if I'm forced to do it for more than three turns. I'm probably in trouble. So turn four is kind of where the army falls apart if we have been playing and interacting this whole time. So if I can make someone to deploy farther back, be more conservative, keep, you know, put things in reserves, and we don't do anything on turn one, I am very happy because now I'm playing a four-turn game and my army's probably better at that than yours is. It's actually really interesting when uh, because it's not just this army that does it, right? You know, we're, we're, we're talking about there are, there are a bunch of different armies that, perform really well for three or maybe four turns in a, in a game and players like yourself 
recognize that and then which part of the game they're going to be strong in and then you you use your list building and your tactics as you're approaching the table to kind of to to gear it so that you will be able to perform in those turns of the game that you want to be doing it rather than just going like a lot of us <laughs> like us not very good players just going oh this is a fast army i'm going to go helpful either right at the start of you know as soon as the gun goes off we're, we're sprinting that's very often not the way to do it if you've got an army that's not going to be able to play five whole turns it, exactly the tyranids it's, it's very tempting to press that button because i gotta say it's quite a feeling when you send a jeans to a squad 28 inches and charge someone right you know you feel so clever like aha i move so fast i'm so good uh it's very tempting to do, but once you've done it a few times and then watch your gene stores not do that much and then get charged by an entire army, you realize it's probably not the best thing. The other thing, and I know we'll get into specific matchups in part two, people. So if you want to know all of the glorious details about how it works, make sure you get part two of this. But just um, out of curiosity, when you're putting your blips out, if you do not get to deploy first, can a unit of, say, for example, infiltrators placed in the right spot stop you from putting the blips where you want them to go? <clears throat> Um, no, they can't. Um, the blips aren't an actual unit, so I can place them within 12 inches of, okay. of infiltrators. Also, the way that, um, that deploying units out of a blip works, I place one model in the unit within one inch of the blip, so I can, you know, measure that to make sure that that is far enough away. Um, I can also, for one CP, move blips instead of, like, before I reveal them. They reveal them at the end of my opponent's first movement phase if they go first, or the beginning of my movement phase if I go first. Um, so at that point, if if a blip is out of position after I've seen my opponent's movement and it's no longer where I want it to be, I can just spend one CP, scoot it 12 inches backwards behind a terrain piece, behind a squad, and have the Patriarch pop out and be uh, character protected. Or if I want, I could even spend a different command point and just put those units in reserve so they can come in and retrieve Octarius data later. It's funny, when you play against Gene Stealers and and someone, or Gene Stealer Colts, and someone like you is on the other side of the table explaining all of those rules, it's like, man, you're just making this up. You're just doing, you're just telling me you can take these little things and do whatever the hell you want. Yeah, that's exactly how it feels. I, like, I can take, you know, 10 minutes to tell you all the tricks, or honestly, just wait till the end of your first movement phase, and then you'll know where everything yeah, is. Yeah, all right. Um, okay, Nick, what else you got? All right, so John, your list looks... Very cool in the fact that it's kind of a little bit of everything. It's got a little bit of warriors, got some hive guard, a malice scepter, a swarm lord, some sky Celestials. It's it's like a pretty diverse battle force looking list. Like you've taken it out of white dwarf. Kudos to that. But a lot of times in competitive 40k, people often think it's just about smashing the math button and taking 18 hive guard or like 100 gene stealers with maximum combat buffs and sending them mathematically at you or just blasting with those hive guard for six turns or whatever. Why have you gone for the diversity approach and how has that been effective for you? So the really big thing is that I'm always afraid of running a skew list because um, as a competitive player, I like winning. That's obvious. Um, and I don't like losing, but there's different kinds of losses for me where the worst loss to me is one where I get smashed because I couldn't do anything. Uh, I've lost many games because I made a small mistake. You know, my opponent played better than me. You know, it was a tough matchup, etc. That happens. I can go back to the drawing board after that. I hate it when I walk up to the table and I'm like, oh no, there's nothing I can do. And I found that that happens to me the most often when I bring the most single-minded list. Uh, single-minded annihilation is my favorite stratagem, but it's not, it's not a great approach to how to write a list for Tyranids because any one you know, profile spam will find something it's not good into. And so I try to take you know, a couple of different damage-dealing units, Hiveguard, Devilgaunt, Gene Stealers, that... They can all be buffed. They can all get the buffs that make them really good in this book. And 
when you do that, they all will do very different things. They'll produce very different things. They'll be good into different profiles. And I instead place the burden on me as the player to get those buffs in the right places and those units hitting the right things. I found that that's more effective for dealing with different armies. Um, even though, you know, we've had some periods of ninth edition where, you know, the top tables have looked a little bit uh, stale and a little bit repetitive. I found that the the top armies are very different in their profiles. And I think that a lot of the factions right now are actually still very good at the middle and upper tables. And you can still play almost anything there. Like, you know, even though I don't expect Chaos Space Marines to be like winning a nine man event right now, I honestly would not be shocked if I played against an undefeated Chaos Space Marines player with like a Lord of Skulls and some, uh, you know, like some crazy Chaos Demon engines. Like, I wouldn't be surprised to see that. There's so many different things out there. I don't want to run one profile and then find out it's not good into one thing I didn't see coming. So, also, purely from a math perspective, I actually think the Devil Gaunt is the best uh, button to smash. So that's why I think uh, Termagants are like Termagants and Genestars are the only unit that I took two of in this list. Oh, I guess Acolytes. Never mind. That sounded better. Your troops, but only troops. Only troops that I take multiples of here. I, I, I love your answer. I think you've hit a nail on the head. But another point I'd like to raise is that when you smash the math button, as we've been putting it, you are essentially putting the game into into dice, right? Like you may likely set up the odds for Hiveguard to kill some intercessors. That's pretty likely to happen. But you could just roll all twos and be extra sad about it. When it looks like your army is really predicated on movement and stalling, which save for some advanced rolls, which I know you have some ways around which we can get into, you can't really mess up the movement phase unless you yourself as a player don't see something or or miss micromanager models. So like you said, you're really putting the burden on yourself as a player to to execute that. One, do you do you think that's a good summary and how do you perform the movement phase and so how can someone practice the movement phase and get better at it um I, I think that is a good summary and you're right i do kind of put the burden on myself which is it's difficult i think that um this is actually probably the hardest to play list that i've used this season uh but it's also if i'm being honest this is the most fun that i've had this season is playing this army had um, your cake played, and eat it too played 40k I, on mode. here we are yeah it, it is the most difficult army i've played this season i've played you know dark elder ultramarines um sisters uh, and a bunch of other space marines at various points. Uh, but th this is the, both the most fun and the most challenging, I think. And I'm sure it's both of those for the same reason. Um, as far as how to practice it, I, I think it's really about getting the repetitions in and looking at what happens with your mistakes. Because with Tyranids, it's an army that's all about movement. It's all about controlling what your opponent can do. I think Tyranids are the best army at forcing your opponent's choices. And... Like, you have to take advantage of that. Give them only one option. But now, you know, you're, if you play Tyranids, if you start a new army, they're a hard army to play. You're going to lose some games. I've lost quite a few practice games with these Tyranids. And after each one, I had to look back and be like, okay, what movements did I make that I needed to do better? What did I, like, when did I need to wait a turn? When did I need to move out farther, move myself back? You know, it's weird because sometimes in order to avoid a charge on turn two or three, you need to actually start the hive guard walking backwards on turn one, which is I'm not proud of when I have to start my turn one by moving my hive guard backwards. But you know, when the wolf guards start running at you, that's what you do. Um, and you also kind of need to decide like, is this a turn where I need to throw a screen forward, or is this a turn where I need to make sure that I don't have a single model in in charge range of my opponent so that they can only get their movement forward instead of potentially getting pile in charge rolls and consolidates as well. Um, it's for Tyranids for me has been all about practice. Um, this is the third uh, event that I've taken Tyranids to. And as far as how I felt as a player, 
I think that uh, each event has been played better on my end than the one before it. It sounds like you, you're reasonably settled with your list. As you mentioned, you've taken it to a few events. You kind of, you know what everything does and everything, everything is there for a reason. You've looked at your secondaries before you even built the list. You've, you've built it to perform to the last uh, engage and retrieve Octarius data. That's why several of the units are in there to, to either, you know, everything's got a job, it feels like. Is there anything that you're underwhelmed with at this stage? Anything that you're looking to bring in from the subs bench that you'd like to try out? How do you feel about all of the units? Let me piggyback off that real quick, John, before you answer. I know a lot of players like uh, Manny Chima, for example, have run Tyranids and Gene Circle. They'll typically go for like a Magus to save points over the Patriarch, or sometimes they'll skip the Malice Scepter because it's kind of expensive. You've made some like controversial choices in this list too, so talk about those as well. Yeah, so as far as where the list is at, I'm actually I'm extremely happy with it. I, I don't think I'm going to change a point until we get new missions for me to look at. Um if I was to say that there is one thing that I'm unhappy with, it's the Lictor, because he doesn't do anything, never does anything, and never will do anything. But he is cheap, and he gets retrieve Octarius data. And when I was writing this list, I actually cut him for my old list that had a Lictor. And then I ended up at uh, at 39 points remaining, which was literally enough for a Lictor. And I took that as a sign from the hive mind to put him back in, because there was nothing else I could take for 39 points. And I didn't know what to do with 12 extra points. I didn't know what to, to cut to get, you know, to take a 45-point unit. So I was like, screw it. This is a sign. I'm putting the lictor back in. And was it worth it? Was he any good? Did he do the job? Did he get your retrieve Octarius data? He, he is, honestly. He gets my retrieve Octarius data. He gets my, my engagement all fronts. Probably the best thing the lictor can do, honestly, is that he deep strikes and is so forgettable. He's so ignorable. Like, I know he's supposed to be stealthy because that's what he is. Mine is painted bright red. He's not stealthy, but he is so worthless that my opponent ignores him anyways. And where this comes in value is that Tyranids have a stretch double move, a 1 CP. I know I've mentioned it before with a screening unit. It's also really good because uh, it's after you do a normal move or advance, you can then do another normal move or advance. And so you could potentially normal move him 9, normal move him 9, which means he can move 18 inches and retrieve Octarius data. He can go advance, double it, so he can, you know, he, he moves nine. Let's say the Lictor rolls a three on his advance. He goes 12, one CP. Now he moves 24. And that is far enough to go touch an objective very far away, get behind a wall, get an engage in all fronts point. Because frankly, this guy will normally sit deep strike into a corner, get me engage in all fronts and retrieve Octarius data. And then my opponent's like, all right, he already retrieved Octarius data. So he's useless now. And well, maybe, maybe he'll sit behind the wall and just get me a point on engage every turn. Maybe I'll spend a CP and double move him onto an objective that you left a rhino on because you didn't think that a guy 24 inches away could very easily get there. Or maybe he'll go 18 inches and rot a different corner. Um, he, he's all there for the mission. His damage output is literally zero, uh, except for the one time I killed one of Siegler's cryptics. But I don't think he's ever going to kill a model again. Anything can kill a cryptic, though, right? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a pretty low bar I was setting there. <laughs> So you're happy with so, the, uh, where the list is at? Sorry, uh, and Nick, you had your piggyback question off the back of that as well. The the, the controversial choices. I want to know choices. about this patriarch and the malice scepter. What, what well, all right, are let's they? do it. So the malice scepter is like the worst unit in the Tyranid Codex traditionally. This thing is terrible, to be clear. Um, he comes with a bunch of special rules that don't actually do anything. He's just a toughness seven brick with a four up envelope. He's just like a a big slab of meat that sits there with three weapon skill, four attacks, casting one. You know, he knows one power um and smite and he, he's like completely useless but the new synaptic links gave him a new life uh what the synaptic links do is the the malice scepter picks a unit 
within his synapse range or daisy chaining through synapse with synaptic links. And he gives it reroll damage, and every roll of a six to wound is a plus one AP. This is insanely valuable, and I like it because it buffs multiple units in my army. Uh, the reroll damage is very strong on Hiveguard. If I'm only going to take one unit of Hiveguard, I want them to be as effective as possible. So having them reroll damage means that one unit of Hiveguard is a, probably just as good as two squads would be at killing power armor marines. Like I think, um, like my my hive guard, if I fully buff them, double tap with exploding sixes, rerolls to hit, reroll damage, and everything, they can kill about like seventeen or eighteen marine bodies on average. And if you aren't rerolling damage, you're going to get about the same number from a sec an entire second squad of hive guard if the first one wasn't rerolling damage. So I just love that as far as making the hive guard as effective as possible. If I'm going to take one, I want to buff to the gills and have it do work for me. Um, but this same buff can be put on anything. It can go on Termagots. And it does actually work in combat, which doesn't come up often, but is adorable when it does. And the big thing is the Termagots, they, they have a bucket of dice. And you can do the same stuff. You can give them the exploding sixes, the rerolls to hit. You know, I haven't mentioned yet, but the stratagem Relentless Flurry for uh, Tyranids uh, from the new Leviathan supplement is absolutely fantastic. Where every six to hit becomes an additional hit. And if it's on an 11 man or more unit, it becomes two additional hits. So you take this Gaunt Squad, you buff it at the kills, and you shoot it at a tank, and now your every six to wound is AP1. So if you shoot it at a Redemptor, and you shoot like a full brick, well, half your wound's going to be AP1, so half of them are going to be four ups. So if you do like, you know, you roll like, you do like 30-something wounds to it, uh, then they'll take, you know, about 15 four ups and 15 five ups, and out of that, they're going to fail enough saves to lose an entire Redemptor to a Folly of Gaunts. And no one really sees that coming. And it is especially important when shooting at two-up armor save units, because just dicing your way through two-up saves takes a while, and when you take it to, okay, but half of them are three-ups, you can really make progress on it. Um, the average is that a fully buffed unit of 26 Gaunts will kill a squad of Death Shroud Terminators every time it shoots. And no one expects that, because AP-Gaunts shouldn't be good at killing T5 Death Shroud Terminators, right? If I told you I had strength for AP-Gaunts, you would think, okay, well, the best profile is going to be T5 two-up save, Yes, and this buff really helps make that not a problem for me. And we, that is crazy math. Can we that just revisit, not. sorry, Nick, the, the way that the synaptic linking works is really important here. You've got him in there because you can have synapse, synapse uh, creatures dotted across the board, and then that buff just goes bouncing, bouncing, bouncing along to wherever you need it. Is that, have I understood that correctly or no? You're correct. It, it works like a cell phone tower where every synaptic link uh, can go to a unit in synapse range of the caster. Or if there is another synapse creature in range of the caster, it can go to anyone in range of the second synapse unit. So if you've got the Malice Scepter next to the Warriors next to the Gaunts, if the Malice Scepter is not in range of the Gaunts, but is in range of the Warriors, and the Warriors are in range of the Gaunts, you bounce the buff down the line and you telephone it down to the Gaunts who are waiting for it. And th this comes up a lot where I'm like, okay, the, uh, the Warriors are going to buff uh, the Gene Stillers on the right. And my opponent's like, no, 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 you're, you're out of range. And I'm like, no, 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 I, I really am. Like, I know it looks like 30 inches, but, you know, there's a Malice Scepter here, and then there's a Malanthrope there, and then the Swarmlord's there, and his synapse range is 18, so he can give it to anyone. Once you reach the Swarmlord, the Swarmlord basically reaches everyone else. So it just kind of works, and the buffs go all the way down the line, and I pick the unit, mark them, and uh, there they go, you know, off doing violence. And that's another way that you get to keep your guys alive all the way through the game, unlike uh, HQs who have to follow units around and stay within three or six inches to get the buffs off. You can kind of do it from a safe distance as long as you've got those 
synapse units between you and wherever you want the buff to be. It's such a good flavorful rule as well. Like it's so tyrannity. Exactly. This army actually does really play the way that I envision Tyranids doing it. I'm really happy that I have a list that has like a couple of monsters, a lot of bodies, and a decent amount of the mid-sized units as well. Because it's very rare for a Tyranid army to want all three of those. And at different parts of the game, monsters have been good, hordes have been good, and then the mid-sized units have been good. But it's been very rare that I actually get to take all three in the same list. What about that Patriarch? Oh, he's my favorite. I mean, you know, I am Sanyar Patriarch, of course. So the Patriarch was actually in there as a, a direct response to what I perceived as my problems. Where the I think the worst case scenario for Tyranids is that someone deploys on the line, they go first, they sprint at me, I have my blips out, so I have one turn to stop them. But now when I put out my screens, they pile in and consolidate and they get deeper and deeper and deeper into my lines, and they get there before I can break them. And you know, someone like challenges me to like, oh, you do a lot of damage, let's do it together. I'm gonna fight you on my terms in your side of the board. And he's a little bit of counterpunch that sits in my deployment zone. He's a psyker. He has very good spells. He knows both mind control and um, mass hypnosis. Mass hypnosis is a great spell. It, it denies overwatch, gives a negative to hit, and applies a fight last. So I now have two different fight last spells. So if someone tries to run at me, um, I can make several things fight last. And then I'm actually confident engaging in multiple combats where I'm not going to get burned by the interrupt. Uh, I have plenty of other tricks you know, with bodies where I can you know, use some trickery that we often teach in the war room to uh, get around uh, an interrupt. But the safest thing is to tell my opponent that they can't do it, and therefore that I can not have to waste bodies and waste resources because they're precious to me. I want to waste them on my terms, not, terms, not my opponent's. And the Patriarch's a good unit in combat. He's six attacks at strength six, AP three, damage D three, and he rerolls all his wound rolls. So a Patriarch can very easily go kill another character. He can go pop um, like five intercessors. He can go kill all of these little units He's not going to kill 10 Deathwing Terminators by himself, but he can go in there and knock out small units and be another combat threat besides the Gene Steelers and the Swarmlord. And my army's a little bit lacking in those. I found that a Magus was just useless. And my list used to be like a Magus and one more 50 point trash unit like Sky Slasher Swarms. And just every time I was like, you know what? I think I need a little bit more punch in my backfield so that when people run at me, I, I don't just panic and have to throw everything I have into them. I want to have more options for taking these out. Uh, and, and it has been, it has really been very valuable. Uh, I love the Patriarch. I, I, I don't think I'm going to drop him at all. He's, he's a little pricey, but he's worth it. Well, Steve, that, that's it for me. I think we need to end it on Senor Patriarch praising the Patriarch. But I will let you if you have any more questions. I do have just one more thing I need to, to touch on real quick. How many CP do you start with? If we're talking about list building, this is an important consideration. How many CP do you, do you start with? And... Are there strats that you are that are, that are just your go-to's uh, in every single game or or every single turn you're going to pull these things out? One hundred percent, yeah. So the list starts at nine command points. So I plan on having fourteen across the five turns, and then um, I do get a command point back and a five plus every time my opponent spends one, thanks to the relic my mount throw pass. So I usually will get two or three more across the game. I don't rely on them, but it's nice that they're there because it's a free relic. Um, the the really important stratagems for Tyranids are uh, relentless flurry. I've already mentioned it once. Um, it's that one where I get exploding sixes. It makes Hive Guard very valuable. It makes Termagants very, very valuable because they just get Tesla. Um, it makes Gene Steelers better as well when I did use it on them. Um, there is Double Shoot, which is uh, you know single-minded annihilation. Any infantry unit, eight, if I'm being honest, whichever unit gets Relentless Flurry is also going to Double Shoot because once I start investing the buffs, I want to get maximum value out of them. 
because I almost always put it on the unit that is getting the rerolls to hit. And I just stack and stack and stack the buffs, and then I just do it all again. Um, the other stratagems I use a lot are the double move, where one CP, uh, I believe it's called Metabolic Overdrive, lets me move a unit and have a small chance of taking mortals. And uh, I just use that to get board control and to just control where my opponent can go and to score me points, go contest objectives. Uh, there are a couple other good ones for Leviathan. Uh, for one command point in my command phase, I can use it. Uh, I can make a unit just become objective secured. If they already are, they count as two models. So nice and easy. Um, if my opponent tries to come take my objectives away from me, I can make anything in my army objective secured. And because I have so many bodies, making them all count double, because all of my horde units are troops already, then I can have a 12-man gene store squad count as 24 models, which means it is really hard to take objectives out of my deployment zone. If I want to hold on to them, I'm going to hold on to them. Um, the last one that I think really comes up for me often is I have a two-command point stratagem to take a unit and make it pretend it is a different high fleet. So I can have the, they're all high fleet Leviathan. They get a six of feeling pain within six inches of synapse creature. For two CP, they lose that. They lose that feeling of pain, and they get to pick a new high fleet, kind of like their death watch uh, from the list. And the best one by far is high fleet Kraken. You know, Kraken was dominant. The real good thing here is that I can fall back and charge. So if you come and tag Termagants, and they're not going to fall back and shoot, but for 2CP, I can fall back and charge, and then I can use them to reestablish my screens. Or if I'm trying to get into threat range of something, they also get that 3D6 take the highest on their advance. And that's until my next command phase. So, you know, I can say, like, hey, the Gene Stealers can go 28 inches and charge. And my opponents can be like, okay, but, you know, that's just two advance rolls. So, you know, maybe it'll go like 21 inches and charge. And then I have to kind of be like, okay, just so you know, though, if I, if I make it 3D6 take the highest, I'm. I may not go 26, but I'm probably going at least 24 inches. And at that point, it becomes a very dangerous game of trying to outdistance the Tyranids because if I need to invest the, the command points, I'm going to get there. The great news is you just told us you're not going to do that on turn one. So now people who are facing off against you know that's not going to happen, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say I had someone try to call my bluff on day three where I deployed on the line and in my head, I'm like, yeah, they're going to redeploy backwards after my, my opponent get out of range. And then they didn't. And I'm like, okay, well, uh, that 20-man rack squad is dead. <laughs> okay. It was a trade I was having to make. So just because you said you almost never do it doesn't mean people get to push that button if they want to. Doesn't mean it's free. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Well, look, uh, John, thank you, mate. I appreciate it. Uh, Nick, are you ready to go for uh, part two where you can you can bring the pain? You can, you can bring the uh, strategies of all of the other armies and see how John can cope with it? Hell yeah, Steve. I've been, I've been ready. I've been after this for a while john are you ready 100 percent. i am hyped to talk about it this is my favorite army to play right now i can talk about it forever we can do a part three after this <laughs> perfect i'll just put the kids in front of another movie be right back uh all right folks we're going to be back with part two um all you have to do is press play on that if you're a subscriber part two is right there ready for you if you're not a subscriber and this is the end of the journey for you please go to the art of war 40k.com Find out all about the team there, the great coaching that is available, uh, the great um, podcasts that are available. You've got Art of War Down Under. You've got Art of War Unbroken. It's just an enormously knowledgeable team of people who, as I've already said, are super approachable. They just want to help you get better at the game. And that's not even counting all the strategy sessions and all of the battle reports and all of the uh, available content that you can just get through the war room. It's just an amazing resource. If you haven't got it, go get it, theartofwar40k.com. 
uh, or check him out on Facebook. And as I said, ask any questions you want to ask. For subscribers, we'll see you real soon. If you're not a subscriber, we'll catch you next time. This is The Art of War. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under and Art of War Unbroken on the competitive 40K network. The Art of War 40K.com. <laughs>